Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Hidden Signs. I'm your host. My name is Jeff Murray. I'm a professor of marketing at the University of Arkansas. Today's episode is interesting from lots of different angles. It is also important to branding, yet it's slippery, evasive, hard to pin down. The topic is, what is brand authenticity? Everyone agrees that building brand authenticity is key in marketing, but what does it really mean? And what role do hidden signs play? This is one of those concepts that seems to sensitize us to something rare and remarkable. But finding definitive meaning is really hard. Brands such as Dove or Patagonia are often perceived by consumers as authentic. For example, Patagonia's mission statement is building the best product, causing no unnecessary harm, using business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. This mission statement informs everything the company does, from its culture, to product design and manufacturing, to its marketing messages. The mission statement talks about creating a quality product, about not causing harm, and about helping with an important social problem. But is it authentic? If so, why? Authenticity is a hidden sign. If we want to understand it, and make this sign visible, we need to explore the genealogy of this word, authenticity. Authenticity became an important issue in the music and art world when top-down theories of fashion became reflected and rethought. When I say top-down theories of fashion, probably the earliest and most famous example is Thorstein Veblen's best-known book, The Theory of the Leisure Class. Veblen was an American economist, born in Wisconsin in 1857, and died in California in 1929. Veblen coined the phrase, conspicuous consumption, which he defined as spending more money on goods than they are worth. The Theory of the Leisure Class was published in 1899, So at the time, this was an original idea. Veblen explained that during the Industrial Revolution, a nouveau riche, or new rich, social class emerges as a result of the accumulated wealth. This class used consumption to oppress upon the rest of society their social status. This was one of the first sociological works focusing on consumption rather than production Other social classes would emulate the symbolic capital of the leisure class, disseminating their signs and symbols throughout society over time. In other words, sign systems trickle down. What results from this behavior, according to Veblen, is a society characterized by the waste of time and money. The point for us in this discussion is that consumer culture is created from wealth, power, and industry from above, the upper classes. It is a top-down argument. Veblen set the stage for other theorists, such as the critical theorists of the Frankfurt School, 
who argued that our society is dominated by the culture industries, mainstream marketing practices, ideas that have become the centerpiece for the marketing discipline, are based on this top-down or trickle-through model. For instance, think of Everett Rogers' diffusion of innovations. Innovators are the cultural creatives who forge something new. Early adopters translate this innovation for the early and late majority, or the mass market. And the mass market transforms the new into the conventional. Now, it seems like I'm diverging from our topic of authenticity. But this idea of taking something new and interesting, and then, through the commercialization process, transforming it into something else, has a lot to do with what we are trying to understand. Let's jump ahead to the late 1970s and another theorist, Dick Hebdige. Hebdige wrote a famous book in 1979 entitled Subculture, The Meaning of Style. In this book, Hebdige questions top-down theories of fashion. Remember earlier I said that authenticity became an important issue when top-down theories started to be reflected and rethought? Hebdige's ideas illustrate this really well. Hebdige focused on Britain's post-war youth subcultures. These youth subcultures were largely disenfranchised. Unemployment was high and opportunities for class mobility were low. Society was just not working for them. Hebdige observed that they would use the raw materials of social existence, art, music, fashion, and style, to create symbolic forms of resistance. These symbolic forms were the beginning point of something new. Here, cultural creatives are at the bottom of society, the lower classes and working poor. So it makes perfect sense that their signs and symbols are artistic expressions of rebellion. Compare this with top-down theories. Cultural creatives, as part of the fashion industry, arise out of, and are consonant with, a capitalist form of social arrangement. In other words, sign systems from the top buttress and support the status quo, and sign systems from the bottom critique and disrupt the status quo. What both top-down and bottom-up approaches have in common is that sign systems are infectious. They tend to spread. Now, from the perspective of the mass market, the dominant society, radical subcultures generate a fear of the other, skepticism, and maybe an existential anxiety. In some ways, this gives the subculture a certain kind of power. The art, style, or music is perceived as separate from the gears of commercialization and commodification. It just seems real. This is important for authenticity. However, if it is perceived as authentic, 
This authenticity has a very short shelf life. This is because entrepreneurs are attracted to this authenticity and they find a way to commodify it, sell it. Before long, the sign systems of the subculture are made available to the mainstream, turning a sign of resistance into a sign of integration, conformity, and convention. So, this is important. What might start out as something authentic, whether it is coming from an artistic fashion designer at the top or a rebellious subculture at the bottom, loses its original creative value as it becomes sanitized for the masses. Some cultural theorists argue, hey, when it comes to sign systems, there is no top and there is no bottom. This is a false dichotomy. But they still write about how innovations spread through society. And as these innovations grind through the capitalist apparatus, they change. They morph into something else. Well, this creates a problem for brands. Brands are designed to grow, become popular, enter the mainstream. So, one of the key questions for authenticity is beginning to emerge. As brands grow and become more popular, how should they be managed? In the early 1980s, something interesting was going on in the Pacific Northwest. Specifically, Seattle, a remote and isolated city at the time. Its working-class character influenced the music scene's whole aesthetic. Work clothes, thrift store truckers' hats, and pawn shop guitars. The birth of grunge. The heavy metal bands of the early 1970s, such as Black Sabbath, combined with other music genres such as punk and alternative rock, were creating a new sound and a new fashion best represented by the Generation X icon, Kurt Cobain, and his band Nirvana. The Seattle music scene, which was becoming known as grunge, was beginning to shape the sensibility of a new generation. Their second album, Nevermind, appearing in 1991, was the paragon of authenticity. Nevermind not only made grunge popular, it also established the cultural and commercial viability of alternative rock. Other grunge bands subsequently replicated Nirvana's success. Pearl Jam, for example, had released its debut album, Ten, in August 1991. For the second half of 1992, Ten had become a breakthrough success, reaching number two on the Billboard charts. It appeared that grunge was here to stay, but then something interesting began to happen. Grunge had value, and entrepreneurs were beginning to discover ways of commercializing this value. In fact, the New York Times coined the phrase, the grunging of America. Marketers were beginning to discover grunge sales. Grunge fashion began to hit the runways of high fashion in New York City soon after. There was grunge hair gel and easy listening music called Grunge Light. And to top it all off, Grunge Air Freshener hit the market. Hebditch seems to be right. 
he theorized that capitalism is designed to seek value, whether at the top or the bottom. And this value is linked to power and money. It's only a matter of time before it's packaged. By the death of Kurt Cobain in 1994, grunge was over. A picture of authenticity is beginning to emerge. Creativity comes from the mixing of ideas, different genres of music, different historical contexts, and different artistic philosophies. Innovation bubbles up from the breaking of norms. There is a certain kind of magic and deviance, particularly if these deviations become value expressive of a particular subculture. These expressions are infectious. They spread to different spaces and places. However, the institutions needed to spread them also seem to kill them. This creates a curious dilemma. When a creative expression marks distinction and is therefore perceived as authentic, how can we get our arms around it and keep it from morphing into something less valuable? Earlier, I said that in order to understand authenticity, we need to understand the genealogy of the concept. In existentialism, authenticity is the degree to which an individual's actions are congruent with their beliefs, values, and desires, despite external pressures. Jean-Paul Sartre, the great existential thinker, was famous for saying, We choose ourselves. In other words, choosing yourself and not following the herd is a choice you make on the basis of your experience, values, and beliefs. If you are steadfast in the face of social pressure, then this is being authentic. We don't merely know thyself, we be thyself. This discussion of authenticity adds up to three questions that are important for every brand manager. First, how far can you extend a brand before you dilute it? I want to illustrate this first question with a brand coming out of the beach and skate youth subculture of California in the mid-1980s. One of the time-honored moves in skateboarding is an airwalk. The skater launches from a ramp, slips the board out from under their feet, and walks in the air. When you see someone do this for the first time, you can't help but be impressed. Well, Airwalk is also a brand. And in the early 1980s, Airwalk oozed authenticity. Airwalk was a small, rebellious company made up of ex-skateboarders who designed and manufactured a shoe for the hardcore rider. These skateboarders would rub dirt into the shoes, wash them over and over, take sandpaper to them, then drive a car over them again and again. These were tough shoes. This breaking-in ritual was designed to fit the subaltern, edgy, marginalized skateboarding subculture. By the late 1980s, Airwalk had built a comfortable $13 million a year company. They had a loyal group of consumers, and the symbolism surrounding the brand had value. From a marketing perspective, 
we would say that the brand had built brand equity. This equity started them down a path of growth. For example, they began to target new segments of consumers. Moving beyond the core rider, they shaped new marketing strategies for an entertainment segment. Riders who were not very good at it but had fun. And a fashion segment. Consumers who did not skateboard at all but identified with the subculture. The brand was slowly being positioned for the masses. By 1996, Airwalk was a $175 million a year company. As they expanded, they began to send a less expensive fashion shoe to mainstream outlets like JCPenney's. The core rider, sensing that Airwalk had sold out, began to turn away from the brand. By 1998, the trend was over. Here's the president of Airwalk reflecting on the story. We had this little jewel of a brand, and little by little we sold that off into the mainstream. And once we had sold it all, so what? You buy a pair of our shoes. Why would you ever buy another? This is a great illustration of our first question. How far can you extend a brand before you dilute it? The second question is, how do you stay entrepreneurial even as you develop professional management? I want to illustrate this question with a brand we are all familiar with. When Starbucks started at Pike Place Market in Seattle in 1971, they were a small coffee company associated with the romance of the high seas. Starbucks was the first mate on the Pequot in the great American novel Moby Dick, and Puget Sound was a stone's throw away. The cultural creators that formed the company were teachers and writers with no interest in growing the company or taking over the world. Ten years later, when Howard Schultz enters the scene, and then when the company went public in 1992, everything changed. The original cultural creatives dropped out. Starbucks expanded across the U.S. and then around the world. Just as consumers were embracing and loving the craft beer industry and neighborhood coffee shops, Starbucks was being perceived as a monolith, a large and impersonal corporate structure intractably uniform and hegemonic, designed for growth and profit. Well, they knew they were in trouble. In fact, their most recent coffee shops in Seattle are stealth coffee shops. The symbolism of the brand is disguised as local. Here we have an interesting layered sign system. The symbolism of Starbucks, and then the symbolism of local, disguising Starbucks. What started out as authentic ended up conspicuously commodified. This brings the second question to life. How do you stay entrepreneurial even as you develop professional management? The third question is, how do you maintain your company's soul when you also need systems and processes? In my neighborhood here in Fayetteville, there's a grocery store with a brand familiar around the world, Walmart. This store in my neighborhood is not one of the giant super centers, but a medium-sized grocery store appropriate for the part of the city I live in. 
I noticed one day driving home that the brand name, Walmart, on the side of the building, always in very large letters, was replaced with the name Neighborhood Market. I could still see the name Walmart barely. It was much smaller under the new name. Well, in talking to Walmart executives, there was a sense that the myth of Sam Walton was being forgotten. Sam Walton started with nothing. He was honest, straightforward, trustworthy, hardworking, salt of the earth. He expressed a common man identity, driving his beat-up red pickup truck to work every day. Not exactly what comes to mind when you hear the name Walmart. Well, this question is closely related to the first two. Over the years, it has been hard, impossible really, for Walmart to maintain this soul as systems and processes grew. So, what is authenticity? Is it even possible? As I mentioned early on in this podcast, authenticity is one of those concepts that sensitizes us to something rare and remarkable. But finding definitive meaning is really hard. It is clear from our illustrative examples that creative innovations, before they become commercialized, tend to be viewed as authentic. These authentic creative innovations or science systems have value. They become an identity resource. Consumers use them for expression. Thus, they spread. And as they spread, they change. This cultural process is what creates problems for brands. Now, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm not going to give you a silver bullet, a kernel of wisdom, that will teach you how to make all of your brands authentic. Authenticity is a hidden sign, and we are just beginning to understand its genealogy. In the next two episodes, we will get closer by talking about one of the most interesting concepts in marketing, sign value. I do want to leave you with this. If you are a brand manager, struggling to hang on to something authentic, ask yourself three questions. First, How far can you extend a brand before you dilute it? Second, how do you stay entrepreneurial even as you develop professional management? And third, how do you maintain your company's soul when you also need systems and processes? Sometimes, asking the right questions, articulating and defining the problem, points you in the right direction as you seek answers. I hope that you enjoyed this episode on authenticity. This is Hidden Signs. My name is Jeff Murray. Special thanks to Seth Murray for composing original music for this podcast. Thank you for listening.